And Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, to be here tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word, to study it, to get to know you more. Thank you for your spirit and your guidance, Lord. Uh, we are asking you to guide us into all truth tonight. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth and uh, to understand it, but not just for head knowledge, Lord, but help us to work these truths down into our heart. Um, help us to apply them to our life. And then, Lord, give us the courage to live it out, to live out what we learn so that we can be um, fruitful in your kingdom, Lord, that we can be of use to you, Lord. We want to be used. Uh, we want to know you more, but we also want to fulfill the purpose that you have for our lives here and now. Yes. And uh, as we think of our brother Earl, we think about his life's race, and we want to thank you for that. Thank you for his witness. Thank you, Lord, for his love for you and, and love for your people. Uh, just a kind and gentle man. And, and his hour of need now, Lord, we're asking for your comfort, for your peace, Lord, that you would keep him close. Uh, and, uh, Lord, that there would be no fear and that he would just be comfortable in your arms until you bring him home to glory. We lift up our brother Jim as well to you tonight. As he's under the weather, pray that you would help him get on his feet, help him to get the rest that he needs. Please be with he and Karen tonight, Lord. And we pray for all those who are absent tonight, whether through sickness or travel or whatever, Lord, that you would just be with them and bless them and, and guide them safely home. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to begin Psalm 10 tonight. And uh, my wife has affectionately given me the nickname Side Note Spencer. <laughs> Because I tend to get off on these rabbit trails and have side notes in my lessons. And typically I'll do that in the middle of the lessons. But I tell you what, I'm going to throw you guys a wrench tonight and start with a side note. I just thought of this. Yes. Side note, profit. Sidewalk profit. Sidewalk profit and side note. There you go. Side, side note profit. I like it. It's got a ring to it. Shay side note Spencer is what I call it. What kind of ring? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to go with the side note prophet. I, I like that. But uh, in studying through Psalm 9 and then now into Psalm 10, you'll notice that Psalm 10 doesn't have a title. And why would that be? Um, well, there's some theories on that, but many theologians seem to think that Psalm 9 and 10 were originally one psalm. And so if that's the case, then it would make sense that there wouldn't be a title to this psalm. Uh, there's also no author. And so if they were one psalm originally, that would make sense as well. Um, however, I'm not so sure that that's the case. Um, there's a group of people called the Masoretes, and these guys were scribes, okay? And they were very diligent in their work. I don't know, you've probably noticed if you have a study Bible in some of your footnotes, either the word Masoretic text or a capital M with a dash and then the word text, that stands for Masoretic text, okay? And this is an early text that's often referred to in translation, okay? And it was a Hebrew text. And so what the Masorets did was they added vowel markings, and reference notes to the original Hebrew writings to help them to be more pronounceable when reading. And this is very important. And these guys got their name Masoret from the word Masora, 
M-A-S-O-R-A. And that was simply the system that these guys came up with. It was a complex system of markings that they developed to achieve their purpose of ensuring accurate understanding of the text and then being able to faithfully transmit it time after time after time. Okay, and here's why they did that. Because previously, previous to this text, this writing, this Masora, the text was written in consonants only and had to be memorized. Okay, so what these guys are doing is taking this Hebrew text and adding vowel sounds to it and making it understandable, pronounceable when reading. Okay, um, and that's important. And most scholars believe that these copies of the text, they reflect a date of about A.D. 100, so early. It was early on when we start seeing some of these. And um, this is really important, as we'll, we'll see later on, because in the Hebrew language, there were vowel sounds. Some of the consonants made vowel sounds, but when written out, that doesn't translate. And so they, they come up with a system to write out that sound so that it could be read and written rather than just memorized. And so when you see the Masoretic text, that's referring to that, this Hebrew text early on. And what these guys did, they were scribes, and they took three major steps to ensure that everything they wrote down from the Bible was accurate. And, and they would, when it was translated, it would be translated perfectly. And so the first step that they took was they developed, again, that system of vowels. So Hebrew only contained consonants. Uh, orally, it would sound like vowels, but some of the, the consonants made a vowel sound, and that didn't, you know, orally it, it makes sense, but when you write it out, it didn't. So they developed a vowel system to preserve the writing that they'd received from oral tradition. The second thing that these guys did, these scribes, was they developed a system of accents of the Hebrew text, okay? Think of the word Jose, for example. That little accent over the E tells us to make that E sound like an A. So they created some accents and things like that to help in the pronunciation, to pronounce certain words better. And also it helped to show the relationship of one word to another or one phrase to another. So they were able to connect words back to its meaning. And, and then what they're doing is creating context out of that. So that's very important. So that helped us to better clarify very difficult passages. And the third thing that they did was they developed a system of detailed notes for the text, okay? Now, this is not inspired Bible. These notes aren't, but they're very helpful because this, this way, uh, what they did here, was it allowed them to confirm what was copied, okay? So the notes that they created, they would be able to copy that based on those notes exactly the same way every time. They didn't have copiers. They didn't have all of that way to mass produce copies. So they created notes that would ensure the exact copy. They would know if those aren't in there exactly. Well, it's not, it's not from us. And it wasn't copied correctly. And so uh, they wanted to make sure that that was written out exactly to the T, so to speak. And it's very smart uh, because that ensured identical transmission of the text. Now, the, word, the Hebrew word for scribe, which these guys were, the, they were Masoretic or Masoret scribes, that word means counter, okay? So these guys counted everything in the text, everything, down to the letter. Um, this was another way to ensure accuracy. 
And they knew, for example, that the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, contained exactly 400,945 letters. They knew that. And they knew that the Torah's middle word was the Hebrew word translated inquired in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 16. And so, therefore, they knew that the middle letter was in, you know, in that word. It would be you. They knew that, and they could work forward or backward from that, counting letters for accuracy and all of that, just to ensure the, the, the perfect, accurate transmission of their work. And so, uh, very smart, and they were very diligent to preserve the text. And we owe them a major debt of gratitude today for their work and for their labor, because what they've left, with, left us with today is the most reliable Hebrew text that we know of. And so uh, we're able to continue on in our translating process based on the foundation that they left. And uh, let me give you another example of what they did versus what other translators did. Um, From this point on in your Bible, from Psalm 10 all the way until Psalm 148, versions are going to differ in numbering. Okay? So, like, for example, I believe the Catholics still follow... Uh, the version that would follow the um, Latin Vulgate or the Greek Septuagint. Uh, and so they, can, they still combine Psalm 9 and 10 as one psalm. And so that messes up the numbering, right? The Catholics follow that model. And now if you see the capital L, capital X, capital X in your Bible notes anywhere, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's called the Septuagint. And that was done in the 400-year period between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's also the Latin Vulgate. That's a translation that you'll see. They also include Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as one psalm. Okay, but that's, that's Greek and that's Latin. The Masoretes who copied the Hebrew text just like these guys did, but word for word with their system, etc., etc., they break these psalms up into two psalms, 9 and 10. And every Protestant denomination without exception follows that model. And so uh, you're in good hands if you have a Bible that breaks up this psalm into two psalms, 9 and 10, because every Protestant denomination does that. They don't follow the Greek Septuagint. They don't follow the Latin Vulgate. They follow the Masoretic text, which was a copy of the original Hebrew. So, uh, again, thank you, scribes, for being diligent in that. There's no doubt about that. Um, So, anyway, that would explain why this... Psalm, for example, if it was originally one psalm, why it doesn't have a title, why it doesn't have an author, etc., etc. But since we follow the Masoretic text, that translation, we break it up into two psalms. We're going to call this psalm an orphanic psalm, meaning we don't know who the author is. It's an orphan. And so it could be David. It may, in fact, be David. That's fine. That would be great. Uh, it probably is, but we don't know, so we're going to call it orphanic. It doesn't have an author necessarily that we can prove, and we're going to separate it from Psalm 9 uh, based on what the Masoretes found from the original Hebrew text. So, all right, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in and read the text. Psalm 10. It's got 18 verses in it, so it's a little bit of a long one, but hopefully we'll move through it pretty quick. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. 
the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God is forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his hand. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. All right. It's a lot going on in here, but... As you just take your first blush through, what, what's your 30,000-foot view of this psalm? What, what comes to mind? What do you notice right away? Um, we could seem to get away with everything. Yeah. He's uh, sort of wondering, okay, Lord, why aren't you getting on? Mm-hmm. At the very beginning, you know, hey, you know, um, a lot of people, hey, there can't be a God. I'm doing bad. Nothing's happening to me. Right. And sometimes God's people are thinking the same thing. Where are you? you look at him. You know, get him. Yeah, very true. Sick him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Notice the pride and the haughtiness of man. Right. Yeah, it's all throughout this letter. I think generally what we see here is what's going on in the mind of a wicked person. You know, the one who has rejected God. Of course, we see pride. Verse 2. Persecution of the poor, verse 2. Boasting in his own desires, verse 3. Blessing the greedy, verse 3. Renouncing the Lord, and on and on and on. So we see pride all over the place, there's no doubt. He doesn't even think of God, verse 4. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression, verse 7. And in the secret places, he murders the innocent, verse 8. I don't know about you, but the first thing I thought of as it applies to our day and age, the first thing that came to my mind was Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. when I read that. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. Now they found that one doctor, he was a former abortionist. <coughs> when he died, they found all these unborn babies mm-hmm. in storage bins and things around his house and his office. Right, yeah. The wicked heart hasn't changed. It's still the same. Um, But it does what it does in secret. And, um, you know, the word says that his eyes are fixed on the helpless, verse 8. 
He catches the poor when he draws them into his net, verse 9. You know, so following the line of thinking with Planned Parenthood, you would say, you know, he catches the poor when he draws them into his net. They're in the business to make money. Okay, that's, that's why they're in business. So they would say things like, oh, babies are too expensive to raise. Why don't you come in here and we can fix that problem for you? Um, come right in here. We can take care of that. You won't have to pay for it. Government will fund that, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want to be troubled with that, having a child. You don't want your life to be messed up, bogged down, burdened, et cetera, et cetera. We can take care of all of that. It's, it's that dragging into the net. And the helpless fall by his strength, verse 10. And so, anyway, it's interesting to me that the wicked have no thoughts of God. Therefore, they continually do ungodly things. Um, you know, it's kind of what you said, Larry. It's one, the person who don't believe in God, they don't fear his retribution. You know, so if they're saying there's no God, then that would logically mean there's no retribution for their sin, no accountability, etc. But that doesn't mean that it isn't coming, right? Of course it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the psalmist concludes this song here by affirming the fact that you have heard the desire of the humble, verse 17. So why are you so far off, Lord? Why, 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 why? At the end of the song, you heard. You know, so... David, or if this is David or not, but we don't know, but the Psalms usually, typically, wrap up that way. So they're going to ask a big question early on, like, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? It's a little bit rhetorical, because at the end of the Psalm, you see, he knows all along that the Lord heard. Okay, so at least he was within earshot, all right? That's not too far off, uh, so to speak. So, um, you know, he, he concludes with the affirming fact that, that, God, you are hearing. And so he says you're going to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, verse 18. So God's going to hear, verse 17. And not only that, if you'll remember from Psalm 9, he will avenge, Psalm 9, verse 12. So he's not going to forget the cry of the humble as well, as we talked about in that psalm. But if we're honest, things get tough down here. I mean, things get hard. Uh, and there's just no way around that. It, they do. And I can remember from early on in my childhood, way before I would say I ever come to faith in Christ, I felt like the wicked prospered. Like I had that thought. You know, so I think that's common. We've all had that thought run through our mind like, this guy, I know what he does on the weekend. Okay, but why is he so much faster than me? You know, just little thoughts like that. That's kind of what this is saying. You know, they're getting away with this. Why? There's no justice. What, what's going on? It, you know, because I'm better, like at least in my own mind, right, according to my standard, then I should be doing better. You know, jump higher, run faster, be strong, whatever. But, but they're doing all these things, and, and they're getting away with it. And so it's kind of human nature as well to think along those lines. The wicked seem to prosper. The poor and the helpless get taken advantage of. Um, We've all seen that as well. And even believers, we can feel alone in our struggles at times. We can feel like we're out there by ourselves struggling without any help. So the psalmist begins this psalm with really two very, very honest and heartfelt questions, doesn't he? Verse 1, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why 
do you hide in times of trouble? Now, let me just ask, who's felt like that before? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if we're honest. I mean, Lord, where are you? Why are you standing so far away? I'm not going to say I doubt you're there, but I, I don't see any evidence of that. You know, where are you? I'm in trouble. I need you here. Uh, I need you close to me. I need to feel your presence. You know, things like that. David, or the psalmist, I keep calling it David. <laughs> it probably was David, but we don't know. Anyway, why do you hide in times of trouble? So does God really hide in times of trouble? No. He doesn't. How do we know that? You know, he seems like it. Okay. Well, there's a scripture that says, I'm with you always. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that because how we want to confirm what we think and know is through the Bible, right? What does the Bible say? So if God really doesn't hide, is there evidence in Scripture that would tell us that? That's one good piece of evidence that you just mentioned. Yes? It's like the song says, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And so we want to be able to go back and look into the Word of God and say, we know God don't hide because of this. And let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And I'll just kind of give you a quick synopsis, paraphrase of that. Adam and Eve sinned. Okay, we know that. And God calls for Adam. Adam, where are you? That's in verse 9, Genesis chapter 3. Right. Adam says, "Um, I heard your voice and I was afraid, uh, you know, because I'm naked. What did God say? And I hid myself, Adam said. I was afraid and I hid myself, verse 10. God replies, who told you you were naked? Verse 11. Who hid from whom? Adam hid from God, right? So God does not play hide and seek with us at all. We are the ones who run around the corner with our fig leaf embarrassingly and hide trying to cover our sin, our shame, or whatever. And so that's how that goes down. Listen to this. Jeremiah 29:13 says, "And you will seek me and find me, comma, when you search for me with all your heart." Okay? So again, God is not playing hide and seek. God is not hiding. It's just that people aren't looking for him. Okay? He said, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So we hide from God. He doesn't hide from us. We ignore him. He doesn't ignore us. But I think if we're honest, it does sometimes feel like God is just not there with us in our time of trouble. I mean, it seems like he is standing afar off, like verse 1 says. Well, I think we need to understand something here, and that is that the wicked person thinks that same way. Okay, so we're not wicked if we're in Christ, but the wicked would say the same thing. Well, they think that they're getting away with everything, right? As we read in this psalm. They think that they're getting away with it, that accountability is not coming. They see no repercussions to their sin today, so they think they can go ahead and sin tomorrow. That's kind of the thought process. Where's God, they say. What God, you know, they say. So even if they have one single thought of Him at all, which this psalm tells us that they don't even think of Him. So... We can't let ourselves fall into the trap of thinking like a wicked person. That's how they think. We don't need to think like that because we know better. We have scripture to back that up, that God's not hiding. Okay? 
And so we need to not let ourselves fall into that wicked, if you will, mindset of thinking God's not there. It's not true. He is there. Now, we also know that judgment's coming, and uh, it's going to come exactly when God sends it. And so we may not agree with that timetable, uh, but we can't do anything about that. This is where we trust in the, the sovereignty of God. I mean, judgment's coming. Remember Psalm 9-7 when we were in there. It says, He has prepared His throne for judgment. So the, it's not that God's not ready. He's ready, all right. He's just waiting. He's waiting. So anyway, we need to also understand that all of us, the wicked and the saved alike, we all live in this age of God's grace. We live in this age of God's long-suffering with us, and we need to never mistake God's patience with humanity to mean that he's apathetic toward our struggles or toward our troubles, or in the case of the wicked, he's not apathetic toward sin whatsoever. We need to never mistake God's patience um, in that way, not at all. Just because they live like judgment isn't coming, it doesn't mean that it, that it won't. It most certainly will. And just because we're in a struggle now, we think that we can't get help from God that he's standing afar off, et cetera, et cetera, um, that doesn't mean that he is. In fact, he's not. He has heard. We have confirmation of that in verse 17 of this psalm. So God's there. He hears when we pray. He's not afar off. Um, now, for some comfort for the believer here, I think that's struggling in a time of trouble. If that's you, if you're struggling and if you're in a time of trouble, it, it may indeed feel like God is hiding in the midst of your trouble. That's an honest feeling. It's legitimate, but it is a feeling, right? It's not necessarily reality because Psalm 46.1 tells us, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So present now, while you're in your struggle, while you're in your trouble, he's there. And so that's the truth for the believer. He is not distant and far off. He's a very present help in times of trouble. So not feeling close to God does not mean that he isn't there, right? He will never leave us nor forsake us. We have many scriptures that would validate that. Deuteronomy 31.6 and verse 8, Joshua 1.5, Hebrews 13.5 all tell us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We should take comfort in that truth. And hear this too, even Jesus from the cross felt forsaken, right? The operative word there is felt, forsaken by the Father. Psalm 22 verse 1, this is Jesus' words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said that from the cross. And the rest of that, that verse right there in Psalm 22 1 says, Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, it sounds like verse 1 here of Psalm 10. Jesus felt that the Father was far from him in that moment. And then down in verse 24 of that same psalm, Psalm 22, we read, When he cried to him, when Jesus cried to him, he heard him. Just like we see here in verse 17 of Psalm 10. So your prayers are heard. You can have every confidence that God hears your prayer. So... You see, what we feel in a moment of anguish or in our time of trouble can cause us to wonder, where is God in all of this? I mean, I don't feel his presence. But in those times, 
is exactly when we need to trust in what we already know to be true about God and about his word. Because the truth is, he is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our very present help in our time of trouble, Psalm 46.1. And the promise is that he hears us, Psalm 10.17 and Psalm 22.24. So we have great promises from the word of God. And um, however, this doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer, right? We, we're not exempt from suffering. That's kind of like Christianity 101. That's one of the first things you realize not too long into your walk with the Lord Jesus is that, you know, I don't want to say it like this because it's kind of, it's not accurate, but you know, when the news starts to wear off, when you come down a little bit from that, I'm born again feeling, and you realize you still live in the real world where real suffering still takes place. Real heartache happens, and you realize that just because you're a believer in Jesus Christ now, it doesn't mean I'm exempt from suffering. And that's one of the early realizations that we come to in our walk with the Lord. And that's true. We still suffer. Paul's thorn in his flesh remained. God did not remove that, 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Jesus' cup of suffering, suffering in the garden that he prayed would be removed, uh, taken from him if it be the Father's will. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. It remained. However, God's grace and his strength was sufficient. It was perfect, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, in both of those situations. So I've got three things here that I think we need to consider um, if you are, in fact, going through a difficult time. If you're in the middle of suffering right now, a time of trouble, there's three things to consider. The first one is this. Is there any sin in my life that I need to confess? That ought to be the first place we start. If we are suffering, if we are sick, if we're in time of trouble, is there sin in my life that I need to confess? First John 1 John 1.9 says that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That was written to the believer. And the three most important words in that verse, at least in my opinion, is He is faithful. He is faithful. So if you confess your sin, you know that He is faithful to forgive you of that sin. And you can walk away being cleansed, being forgiven. Why? Because God is faithful. The second thing to remember if you're in suffering is ask yourself, is God teaching me a lesson? So have I confessed my sin? Now I need to ask, God, are you trying to teach me something here? What do I need to learn? And if you want to flip over, or I can read it to you, it doesn't matter, James chapter 1, um, we get a little insight into this as well in, in verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 say, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word for perfect means mature. So, Lord, how are you growing me in this time of trouble, in this season of suffering, if you will? How am I to grow? I need to be patient, but that, that's good. Um, but it's for a reason, so that I may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. So what are you teaching me? The third thing to ask yourself is, is this a trial of grace? Okay, what does that mean? Well, think of Job's suffering or Paul's thorn. Okay, Job was a righteous man by all accounts. Paul, we know... Uh, he was he had a checkered past, but after coming to faith in Christ, he was dynamic uh, for the Lord. 
but his thorn remained. So if it's the third option, if it's a trial of grace, then rest in that sufficient grace of God and his strength for your weakness. Um, in other words, trust in the sovereignty of God in that moment and, and understand that you're his, you belong to him. But what we got to be careful of here is we can never mistake our feelings for the facts. So don't ever mistake your feelings for the facts. God is not far from you in your trouble. That would be a feeling. He, in fact, is your refuge. He is the place that you run to for safety. He is your strength. I mean, when you have nothing left, when your tank is on empty, and that's it, you're spent, He's your strength. He is a very present help in your time of trouble. Those are the facts. Okay, so trust in those facts in your time of trouble. Um, sometimes we have to remind our feelings of the facts, in other words. We want to feel one way uh, when, when really the truth is telling us something else. So stick with the Bible. Stick with the truth of the Word of God and trust the facts. You know, I used to, I probably said this a lot, but I love what Adrian Rogers used to say when he would give an invitation at the end of one of his sermons. When he opened it up for invitation, he would say, don't trust in a feeling, don't look for a sign, but trust in the unchangeable Word of God. That's the truth we stand on. You know, if the, if the Word says, confess, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved, that's what it means. And that's what's going to happen for anybody who confesses and believes. They will be saved. That's the truth. Those are the facts. Well, I don't feel saved. It doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is what is true. And so we always have to go back to the Bible and tell our feelings what the truth is. We've got to give them the facts. Verse 2. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. So the wicked are prideful. They persecute the poor. And I think it's ironic. I mean, to me, it's ironic how the wicked always persecute the poor, right? The helpless, the ones that are easiest to attack, the ones who can't defend themselves. You know, that's their prey, so to speak. I mean, how cowardly. I mean, why not pick on somebody your own size, we'd say, right? But they don't do that. Not at all. I mean, the wicked, this tells me one thing about the wicked. Uh, they're not stupid. Okay, they're just wicked. So they know not to pick a fight that they can't win. And the fact is, they abuse people who can't defend themselves. And, the, and the, the fact that they do that, it speaks to how wicked they really are. They pick on those people that they know can't defend themselves. Uh, and that just, to me, makes it even that much more wicked. Uh, if you think about it, evil is a bully. It really is. It punches down at its opponent. It picks on the smallest kid on the playground. It takes advantage of people. It's deceptive. It sets people up, you know, with trickery and schemes and so on. It makes people think one thing and then do another. You know, so it's it's a plot. It's a scheme. It's a trap. And, and the writer knows this. Yes? It reminds me of all the scams that are out there that a lot of people get taken in on computers and mm -hmm. different things. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You have to be careful. And, and 
we've learned our lesson the hard way on that. I mean, uh, I helped my dad look for a horse trailer one time online that we were going to buy and got taken for a few thousand dollars. And so we learned pretty quick, you know, on that deal that uh, we need to be a little smarter than that. Because the wicked, they're not stupid, they're just wicked. They're deceptive. They set traps. Um, the writer goes on and says, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. So this is a reoccurring theme that we've already seen a couple of times here in the book of Psalms, uh, particularly in Psalm 7, verse 16, and Psalm 9, verse 16. So the psalmist is asking that the wicked be caught in their own trap. Um, it's another way of saying, I want them to get what they deserve. You know, get what they're given kind of a thing. And uh, that does happen from time to time. I mean, sometimes the schemes of the wicked, they backfire. That's true. It doesn't always happen. Um, but we have to guard ourselves here from becoming a little self-righteous. Uh, if, we're, if we're not careful, we can, we can become self-righteous pretty quick. Um, because what do we all deserve? <laughs> we deserve hell. Absolutely. We deserve the punishment that Christ took for us. We deserve hell. So thank God he's not giving me what I deserve. And so we have to be careful not to get that attitude in our own heart of, you know, get them. We need, you know, they need to, to get it. You know, they got it coming and I can't wait. No, we need to be careful about that because we deserve hell. All of us do. We're in that same position. Um, but because of Christ, because of what Jesus did for us, on the cross because of his grace, because of his mercy, that made it all possible for us to not get what we deserve. And so we should in turn be gracious to those who have yet to come to faith in Christ and realize that forgiveness. If we do that, we sort of change places. We don't change places with that wicked person, but we join them. Yeah. Because we become arrogant. You're right. Exactly. I'm not like you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What you say there? Uh, I'm not like him. And all of a sudden it came to me, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. Exactly. Yeah. I tithe. I fast. I pray. Look at this publican. Mm -hmm. And he's going, Lord, have mercy on me. Amen. Sir. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. I yeah. love that. I was just thinking about that same passage because that's so true. That's a, that is the, the most beautiful sinner's prayer I've ever heard. Okay, like there's no such thing as a, a sinner's prayer, right? It's not in the Bible, but except for that one that you just talked about. Mm -hmm. God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a beautiful sinner's prayer. Yes? We need trials to build our faith. Mm -hmm. We dread trials, but the trials that help us to trust and believe in God in, in the hard times. Right. Yeah, and that's part of what James was getting at too, right? The patience builder, the perfecting of our faith, the growing up, if you will. And so as we grow up, we're going we're gonna to stop letting that self-righteousness creep in that says, yeah, get them, God. And we're going to start saying, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. and, and wanting to be uh, more like Christ and how we extend grace and mercy to those who are far from Christ. So, yeah, um, we should desire to love and honor Christ with every part of our life and honestly love and desire for people to come to Jesus. That's what we want for them. We, we don't want them to get blasted into an eternal hell. We want them to come to faith in Jesus. You know, so uh, we need to pray accordingly. Um, 
Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. So get out of the habit of hate. That'll cause up strife, uh, stir up strife rather. Uh, but love covers all sins, including the ones that you don't like, including the ones that you do like, right? Because we all have our favorite sins. It's just that our sins that we like are different than the ones other people like, and that's where we run into a problem. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you raised your hand. <laughs> it's okay. So as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, let's make loving Christ and loving people uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make that our heart's desire. Instead, let's have that kind of attitude. And of course, um, not the desire of the wicked. That's not the desire of the wicked person's heart, rather, in verse 3, as we're going to see. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. I mean... Wow, the wicked brags about his own wicked heart. I mean, this seems hardly something to brag about, right? But they do. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. (laughs) Who can know it? He says, well, I mean, the wicked certainly don't know it because they're bragging about it, right? And even worse, they reject God because they have said in their heart that God will not require an account of their sin, according to verse 13. So folks, never trust your heart. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the pizza. <laughs> so, salami. Yeah, salami. Yeah. Never trust your heart, right? Trust in the Word of God. And that's why it's so critical for us to frame what we think and what we believe by the very scriptures in this book. It doesn't matter how we feel, it doesn't. The only thing that matters is what's true, right? And so we want to know the truth. We can feel all kinds of different ways. What we got to know to anchor our soul is the truth of the Word of God. It goes on to say in verse 3, He, meaning the wicked, blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. I mean, do you see how sin gets everything exactly backwards? I mean, that's 180 degrees out of phase right there. It calls evil good and good evil. <laughs> it reminds me of Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. So sin, it selfishly blesses the greedy. Why? Because it's greedy itself. It's greedy itself. I mean, there's no room for God in the heart of a greedy person, right? It's full of themselves. So therefore, there's no room for God. Did you have something, Susan? And it rewards the, it rewards the person's pride. Yeah. Greediness rewards your pride. Mm-hmm. Whereas we want God to reward humility. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's not until we come to the end of ourself that we get this truth, really. Uh, I'm reminded of you know, Luke 15, the prodigal son in the pig pen. Right in the mess. I mean, what's the first thing that happened for him to get on the right track? The word says in Luke fifteen seventeen that he came to himself. 
Okay. So when we're in the pig pen, we've got to come to our senses, so to speak, uh, like the prodigal son did. And that's when we realize our need for God. Okay, that's when humility comes. We realize that he's God. I'm not. Uh, I need to bow before him. I need to humble myself, come to my senses here, and realize that I need more of him and less of me. And in fact, when we die to ourselves, is when we actually begin to live for him. And Paul said, I die daily. So it's a reoccurring thing even in the life of the believer that we must die to ourself daily, die to our flesh, die to our own sinful desires, and remind our feelings of the facts, things like that, so that we don't get caught in the trap. We don't act like the wicked. Paul said in Romans 6.11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're reckoning in our mind. We're telling ourselves in our mind, I'm dead to that. I'm not going to do that. That's the old me. I'm dying to that sin, but I'm going to live. I'm alive to God in Christ. And so in order to live, to live as Christ, right? He said to die is gain. But we have to reckon with ourselves from time to time to remind ourselves of the facts that, you know what? That's not who I am in Christ. I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm dead to that. And I'm going to, in fact, live uh, for Christ. Verse 4. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. So pride not only doesn't seek God, here's kind of the, the crux. It wants to be God. That's what pride will do. It not, not only doesn't want to seek God, pride wants to be God. Isaiah 14, 14 gives us an account of Lucifer's proud countenance. We see what happened. What happened to that, that bright angel and that fell from heaven. Well, here's what happened in, in Isaiah 14, 14. It says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Pride. Pride. Pride never seeks God, right? It always seeks to be like God. And so that's a huge difference. We have to remind ourselves of that. Pride doesn't seek God. It seeks to be like God. But the writer of this psalm continues in verse 4 and says, God is in none of his thoughts. So the wicked person has absolutely no consideration whatsoever as to what God wants in any situation. I mean, his only concern is with his own heart's desire, verse 3. I like what Pastor Bob Davis said. He's um, pastor of North Country Chapel in, um, in Idaho. And he said this, he said, How many years did you go breathing his air, drinking his water, walking on his earth, because of his gravity, and yet never giving one thought of God? Can you imagine that? I mean, but that's right. How arrogant to do that, to breathe his air. <laughs> it's his. To walk on his earth, it's his. Without ever giving even one thought. So to not give thought to something Really what that means is to not care anything about it. To not care anything about it. So I think an appropriate question for us to ask is, you know, how often is God in your thoughts? How often do you think about him? Psalm 119.11. It's the key verse to our new children's program here. 
I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Um, so God's word is to be hidden in your heart. And that means it's got to be thought about. It's got to be meditated on. It's got to be um, really rolled over and over in your mind. The thought of meditate is like, again, the, chow, the cow chewing its cud. And so we have to work it over, mull it over, and work it down into our heart from our mind. And it takes time. There's a process involved there. Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. And so it's good to think. It's good to think about God. It's good to think when you're reading. Uh, don't skim over things. Take your time. Slow down. Uh, you may have gotten into the habit of doing the read through the Bible in a year, and that, that's all good and fine if you can keep up with it. It got too fast for me, so I had to slow down. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading slower. I started reading smaller portions of Scripture. And I started thinking about them, digesting them, meditating on them. Because it wasn't doing me any good to read volume without getting any good out of it. I wasn't gleaning. But when I slowed down, began to think, meditate, contemplate, man, I, it became alive to me. It started jumping off the page. It started applying to my life more. All of these things, like the Word says. And so don't fall for that trap, you know. Uh, listen to the Word of God. You can listen to many chapters. It's good to get that 30,000-foot view. Like if you, if you want to read in bulk or listen in bulk, that helps you give you an overview of Scripture. It helps tie it all together. But if you really want to drill down, then read slower. Read fewer verses. Read fewer chapters. But really drill down. Get into word study. Think about it. Contemplate. What does it say? What do commentators say? You know, but use them last. Commentators are good. I, I use them myself, but, but never go to them first. Let the Holy Spirit teach you first. And then if you're struggling with something, you need clarity, go to the common commentators. But anyway, we have to illuminate our mind with the Word of God. And uh, that's very critical for the life of the believer. And one of the ways that we can do that is to memorize it. And we're memorizing some scripture in my Sunday school class. We've got three verses down. Uh, you know, we're, we're trucking along and we're hoping to get better. Um, I was hoping to get to this tonight, but I'm not going to be able to get to it. I'll start the lesson next week. Um, but I wrote a website up on the whiteboard for you, truthmadeeasy.com. Um, that is a website of one of my good buddies. He is, uh, I've only known him for about three years now, probably, maybe a little longer. But he is one of the most impactful believers that I've had in my life. He is, I call him my Barnabas. He's my encourager. He's encouraged me in my faith. He's encouraged me in my ministry time and time and time again. And that's a website that he's put together. He also has a book that he has written on Bible memory, scripture memorization. It's called the Bible Memorization Pocket Guide. And you can find most of what's written in this book if you go to truthmadeeasy.com and look up the Bible memorization section. He will give you some really cool truths on um, what it means to memorize Scripture, why we should do it, what's the best way to do it, things like that. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But in the meantime, if you want to check out the website. Yes. Um, one thing we're talking about is you know, the, the centers of 
verse that I had come across a few weeks ago in Ezekiel 33, <coughs> 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? That's right. He's gracious. He's long-suffering, and so we need to learn from that. Uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will repay. So we pray in that way. It, it's, it's better that he avenged than, than us, no doubt about that. So, All right, so let's pray real quick, and then we'll break up into our small groups and have some more prayer time. And remember, as we break up into our small groups, just ask each other the question, how can I pray for you? And then... Uh, Let's really drill down in prayer tonight. Um, that's kind of been a burden on my heart recently, uh, lately, that our church needs to be a praying church. I mean, we've got to pray. Uh, we need to fill up our prayer rooms at 7.30 and 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. We need to be praying fervently and earnestly and exhaustively and intentionally. And we need to be praying expectantly as well. So pray according to the will of God and expect Him to hear, expect Him to answer in that way so lord we are grateful for the time that you've given us around your word tonight Uh, it is true and so lord help us to align our life with the truth of the word of god help us to never trust our feelings but to always trust the facts and the facts are in your word and so help us lord to run to you for refuge and strength you're a very present help in time of trouble Uh, you're near you're not far and lord you will never leave us you will never forsake us We thank you for leaving us with these truths and and your Holy Spirit to guide us into them and to comfort us uh, each and every time that we need it. So, Lord, thank you again for our time tonight. And in your word, please bless our prayer time as well. In Jesus' name, amen.